uh, turn with me tonight to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is where we'll be this evening. Uh, we're going to look at a really interesting story. Uh, I think it's a very interesting parable and for several different reasons, but uh, I think you'll, uh, <laughs> you will too likely be as confused as I think Jesus' apostles were as he is telling this parable. Matthew chapter 20 is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It probably has several other names, but it's the parable of the vineyard workers. And we're just going to step through it really quickly. And then we're going to try and unpack and see what we can learn out of this parable. Because I think it's really fascinating what Jesus does and what Jesus is going to say. Uh, by using this story, he's trying to say a very specific thing about his message, about his kingdom, the kingdom that he was inaugurating by he himself being on this earth. And he says that very clearly. Let's just step through the text. Verses 1 through 16 is what we'll look at of Matthew 20. The word of the Lord says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. So Jesus is comparing his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, like a manager managing a household, and he goes out, it says early in the morning, that's roughly six in the morning, he goes out and brings in some workers to work in his vineyard. So he goes out and hires people, and they begin working. And then verse 2 and when they had agreed with the laborers, or excuse me, when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, a penny here is translated a denarius, which is in the in this mo, in this time in this in this time frame in this first century that was like a a day's wage. It was an entire normal day's wage. It wasn't a copper penny. It was a, it was a denarius. It was a regular hourly wage for work. And so they have this, these terms are agreed upon, this group comes, they start to work, keep this in mind, they begin working at 6 in the morning roughly. Roughly 6 in the morning they are working. Look at verse 3. And he, that is the householder, the manager, he went out about the third hour and saw others standing in the marketplace. And he said unto them, go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. So now we have another group. So he went out at early in the morning, 6 a.m. Now he comes at about the third hour. This is about 9 a.m. And he hires more people and sends them off into the vineyard. And they are now working two separate groups, working different times. Again, look at verse 5. And he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. So here we have, he goes out again at 12 p.m., and then he goes out again at 3 p.m. That's about the ninth hour, 3 p.m. He brings in two more groups. So you have four groups of laborers working in the vineyard, all working different uh, sets of hours. And then we come to verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out. And found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever, whatsoever is right, that ye shall receive. So here, the eleventh hour, 
This is one hour before the end of the day, roughly around 5 p.m. He hires another group of hands to come into his, la- his vineyard and labor for him. So now you have five different groups of workers, all laboring different hours of the day, different lengths of time during the day. That's important to keep in mind, especially as we come to verse 8. It says, this is Jesus speaking. He's telling the story. He says, so when even was come, when the end of the day was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire. So he's calling them in and he's going to give them what they were supposed to get. He's giving them their paychecks. This is their payday. If we come to the end of the day, it's time to get your paycheck. But then he says something interesting. Beginning from the, fir- from the last unto the first. He is already doing something odd by calling in the last group of workers. He's calling in those who had just started working. Let's say the day ended at 6 p.m. They had only worked one hour, and he calls in those one-hour workers, the 11th-hour workers, in to get their paychecks. So he does something really interesting, and then look at what he keeps doing. Verse 9, and when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. Oh, there's something interesting. They received the exact same wage as what the uh, 6 a.m. workers were supposed to get. A penny, a denarius. I can already, you can already sort of see the, uh, the 6 a.m. workers doing some like uh, c- uh, complex math in their heads, right? Okay, so if these guys are getting a whole denarius, a whole day's worth of wage for one hour, then we are going to get 12 hours worth of day's wages. <laughs> We're going to get a really big payday is what they're thinking. They're, they're starting to do a lot of deduction, and now they're starting to get excited. Ooh, we're going to get a really good payday. This was awesome. What a cool thing this is going to be. This is going to be amazing. But then... Something, again, interesting happens. He doesn't just call these last first, but look at what the master does. He does something next that's even more shocking. Look at verse 10. So he's given out all the paychecks, and then verse 10 comes. But when the first came, they that supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. <laughs> they get paid the same amount That the guys who were working one hour were paid. This master pays every single person the same exact wages. I can only imagine the shock on these workers' faces. (laughs) It was like a slap in the face. (laughs) They've been working for 12 hours. And these guys who only worked one hour, they get the same pay as I do? Ooh, that's not fair. That doesn't seem fair at all. And that's what they say. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, verse 11 says, says, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. They are rightfully, I think, unhappy with this manager. (laughs) I would not recommend doing what this manager does in your place of business. If you are a business owner, this is not good business practice. (laughs) And I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say here and show here. He's going to make an important point. 
But what is so fascinating is that these workers who had worked all the day, they were just murmuring at this manager, this householder. They were cursing him under their breath. They were uh, trying to uh, get him to see that they were worth more. We have worked all day long in the heat and exhaustion of the day. We deserve more. And notice what they say there. They say, you have made them equal unto us. <laughs> Notice how they viewed the other workers. They viewed themselves above those who had come at the 11th hour. They say, you have made them equal unto us. How could that be fair? That doesn't seem fair at all. I imagine the apostles are looking kind of confused at where Jesus is going. And then we come to verse 13. But he answered one of them. That is the master. And said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few are chosen. What's interesting is that Jesus is telling this story, and it's almost, actually it is, he is inferring that this manager is not doing anything unjust. The manager's reply, though blunt, though a little bit ungracious to us, though a little bit unfair to us, Jesus is sort of supposing that he's not actually acting unfairly. He is paying them according to what they agreed upon originally way back at 6 a.m. <laughs> he infers that there's no injustice. The manager's actions were actually, Jesus is actually going to say that these are exactly how your heavenly father deals with you. And you might be thinking, huh? Well, to get some context onto why Jesus tells this story, flip back to Matthew chapter 19. Because this is where we get the reason for Jesus telling this parable in the first place. Matthew 19, by the way, is a fascinating chapter. I love Matthew 19. There's so many little vignettes that happen, and they all play into one another. They all speak to say the same thing. But especially this last little scene in verse 27. Look at what Peter says. You always know when Peter speaks, he's going to say something probably a little bit silly. And he's always putting his foot in his mouth. And yet here we have again, he's going to say something that Jesus is going to use as an example. I'm sure Nathan has done this before. When your kid says something silly and you use them in a sermon illustration later. This is sort of what Jesus does. He uses Peter in a sermon illustration. Look at what he says. Then answered Peter... And said unto him, Behold, we, I like how Peter is speaking up for the other apostles. You have to notice that. Peter is sort of like saying out loud what all the other apostles are keeping to themselves. And so that should tell you something about Peter. But I love Peter. Listen, he says, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have there for? What an interesting question. This comes on the heels of the scene um, earlier in the chapter of the rich young ruler. Do you remember that story? The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he asks, What do I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus walks him through and he says, You have to fulfill all the law and the prophets. You have to honor your mother and father. And the young man says, Okay, I've done that. 
What else do I have to do? I've kept all of those laws from my youth, Jesus says, or the, the young ruler says. And then Jesus says back unto him that you have to sell all that you have unto the poor, every single last penny. And the rich young ruler goes away. It is sad because he has a lot of possessions. Now, I think those parting words of God in verse 21, where it says, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Those parting words stick in the minds of the apostles. You can almost hear Peter thinking in his head, Oh, we've, we've done that. We've forsaken everything. I've given up my fishing business and my good partnerships with all my friends and family, and I've come to follow you, Jesus. And that's why he's saying here in verse 27, we've forsaken everything. So where's our treasure? You can see how Peter is thinking on this same line of thought. It's all down here on the ground, on the earth. It's, it's all low thinking. Jesus is trying to raise their thoughts and Peter is keeping it down here. He's thinking only about this treasure, this rewards. He says, what shall we have, therefore? What's, what are you, what are you going to give to us? What are, what are we going to be owed? What are you going to do for us, Jesus? We've, we've done what you said. And again, as is always the case, or not always, but usually the case, this is a, a scene, a, another occurrence of the apostles completely missing Jesus' point. Because, you see, this story of the rich young ruler and then Jesus' subsequent sort of little illustration of it's hard for the rich to get into heaven. I can have another lesson I want to do sometime about that. But really what Jesus is talking about is not necessarily about finances. He's talking about your faith. The rich young ruler's problem wasn't that he had a lot of money. It was that he had a lot of faith in himself. And that's why he goes away sad, because he was trusting in his possessions to get him in. In his goodness, in his fidelity, in his ability to be charitable. He was trusting in that. And that's why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to get into heaven. As hard as it is as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because they often trust in themselves. It's not that you, if you have a lot of money that you can't get into heaven. He's saying if you have a lot of trust in yourself... And so that's why you see, and when it comes to verse 27, when Peter is making this declaration that we have followed you, they're basically repeating the same exact thing that the rich young ruler had just come up to Jesus and said. The rich young ruler had come up to Jesus and said, I've done all those things. And Peter is basically saying to Jesus, I've done all that. Where's my treasure? Where's my reward? And Jesus, I can imagine him just going, you're missing the point. Your reward is me. You're, I'm your reward. I'm the one that, I'm your treasure. Look at what he says in verse 28. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be 
first. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's making a bold statement about how God judges people and what the type of rewards that he gives. God's judgment and reward isn't based on the measure of our sacrifice. It's on the measure of simple faith versus unfaith. He's leveling the playing field. He's saying, just because you've followed me now here, quote unquote, first, doesn't mean you're given any sort of better standing with me than anyone else. Everyone is judged on faith and unfaith. Do you believe in me and that I am your possession or do you believe in yourself? And that you're trusting in your possessions. There's no, basically Jesus is saying that there's no ground here to claim more of God because of what you are accomplishing. He's saying that I am giving myself fully and freely to every single person. That's the offer of my kingdom. And that's why he illustrates that point. And he closes this statement here. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. With the same sentiment in 20 verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called but few chosen. He's leveling the playing field. Basically I think what he's aiming at showing. And what I see in these verses. Is this very very fact that God's ways yes are unlike our ways. Isaiah 55 8 says that his ways are not like our ways. Like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, he uses the foolish to shame the wise and he uses the weak to shame the strong. Jesus does some unpredictable things. God uses unpredictable people, unusable people, and he uses them anyways. And the same here, God does something unexpected. In that, in the same way, the vineyard owner gives all the workers the same exact wage. God gives every single sinner the same exact portion of grace. Whether you are 5, whether you are 50, whether you are 90, whether you got saved when you were really young or whether you get saved when you're on your deathbed. The grace that you are given by faith in Jesus Christ is the same portion of grace. There's no distinction that God shows. There's no sort of uh, parceling out of this grace that he gives to 11th hour workers versus 9 a.m. workers. Jesus' parable showcases that this gift of the gospel is just that. It's a gift given fully and freely to every single person who believes in this gift. It's something that can't be earned by more labor. It's all a gift. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says that very explicitly, that this is God's operative principle, we might say, that he gives to people on the basis of grace. That's what Paul is trying to prove throughout the first half of Romans, that this is how, this is how you know people are of the promise, the children of the promise, whether they believe in the fact that God has justified them apart from their works or whether you believe in your own works that justify you. And this is why what we have to see, this manager was not obligated to hire these laborers. He wasn't hired to uh, bring them into the fields. He went out in search of them. 
In the same way it is with God and His grace. He comes out in search of us. Like the shepherd going after the lost lamb, He comes after us. And graciously gives us responsibility and opportunity to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. This is what's so remarkable about this little story, this little scene, where it shows us the fact that just as the same pay is given to everyone, the same Christ is offered to every single person. That when Jesus offers himself up on that tree, on that cross, he's offering himself up for every single person. For God so loved the world that he gave himself That he made himself of no reputation. That all who will come to him and believe that they wouldn't perish. That they might have eternal life. God gives every single part of himself to us us at the moment of belief. Again, he doesn't parcel out his righteousness. It's not as if when you are 55, you deserve or you have gotten somehow more of Jesus' righteousness than when you were five and you put your faith in Jesus. It's at the moment of belief, he gives you his righteousness fully. He makes you a saint because of what he has done. As we learned about this morning, he gives you a robe of righteousness, a white robe that is washed in his blood, and he gives it to you fully. He doesn't give it to you a little sleeve here and a little sleeve there, and then he gives you the whole thing later on in life. He gives you it all at once. You are made in the righteousness of God once you believe in him. He gives himself fully and freely. And I think we're also made to see that this makes God seem a little bit unfair, doesn't it? It makes God seem a little bit unfair. That he's likening himself, he's likening his kingdom to this unjust, we might say, unjust manager. That doesn't seem fair, God. I have been laboring for 12 hours in the fields. I've been laboring for years faithfully in your service. And yet, this drunk can get saved too. That doesn't seem fair. It kind of reminds me of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? Remember, the prodigal son comes home. And they throw a huge celebration. A huge party is thrown for the prodigal son's return. And the older brother comes in from the field working. And he comes up to the house. And he can hear the celebration outside. <laughs> it must have been a really crazy party. Because he can hear it outside. And he says, what is with all the music and dancing? And the a servant says, your brother is home. We found him. He's back. <laughs> And he gets angry. He gets mad. Because he believes that he is owed something. He believes that he deserves something more. He believes that his sort of work, his sort of faithfulness to his father has earned him some sort of extra amount of favor. And this is, again, another little scene where we see that that's not how Jesus operates. And in fact, I would like to say this. That, yeah, it does seem a little unfair. From our perspective, it might seem a little unfair. But I think that when we say those words to God, that's not fair. We are on very dangerous ground. Why? Because fairness 
If God were to deal fairly with us, we would already be condemned in hell forever. That's dealing fairly with us. That's what we justly deserve. The wages of sin is death. That's God's fairness. Fairness is eternity in hell. You don't want God to be fair. Because that's what you are owed. John 3.17 says that Jesus hasn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world is condemned already, it says. You are already condemned. You are already um, judged guilty. And yet, your hope is in God's gracious unfairness. In God giving to you what you don't deserve. In God blotting out your uh, sinful record by the measure of his blood and by the sacrifice of his son on the cross. That's your hope. It's a gracious unfairness in the fact that he deals unjustly with his own son. That God could deal graciously with you and I. He judges his son in, in sin so that he can judge us in righteousness. He deals with his son, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the one who knew no sin was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is the entirety of our Christian life. It depends on the fact that Christ was dealt with unfairly by his father so that you and I could be dealt with unfair grace by the same father. Remember that, that scene when, when Christ is on the cross? And it says that the father turned away from him. And it says that turning of the way, that's where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that precise moment, all of the world's sins were on Jesus Christ. And the father turns away. And the good news of that is the fact that now Jesus never has to turn away from you. God never has to turn away from you because he's turned away from his son. And so now you can always boldly live and serve him in the beauty of his undeserved grace. Because Jesus bore the undeserved justice that you should have been dealt. I think that's what this story shows. And in fact... Let me just read really quickly. I, I, I think I've referenced this a couple of times already. But I can't get away from Isaiah chapter 53 lately. There's an incredible verse at the end of Isaiah 53. You know it as this messianic chapter prophecy in the book of Isaiah. It's talking about Jesus, the, the man of sorrows who bore our grief. And I love verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide us spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is God being dealt with unfairly. <laughs> Jesus, the righteous one, the holy one, the one who knew no sin, the lamb who was blameless and spotless, he was clean, is being numbered as a transgressor on behalf of the transgressors. That's unfairness. That's God's gracious unfairness. Not giving us what we deserve, but giving us the exact opposite of what we deserve. Dealing with his son unfairly so that he can deal with us in grace. 
This is Jesus' message. This is Jesus' message to his apostles. This is what the kingdom is about. It's not on the measure of your merit. It's on the measure of your belief in me. And the apostles were inquiring back in our text, Matthew 20, uh, Matthew 19. They're saying, what are we going to get, God? What are you going to give us for following you? We have done everything. And Jesus says, yeah, you have forsaken things. But your gift, your treasure is me. I'm the treasure. I'm the portion that you're going to get. So therefore, we don't have to boast in our labors or hope in them to get us more favor from God or anything like that. No, but like it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, if I'm going to boast in anything, let it be the cross of Christ, Paul says. If we're going to boast in anything, we're going to boast in that. Not something that we earned or accomplished. It was something that he did. It was something that he accomplished. It's something that he made possible. And just like all of these workers receive this same wage, I think we have to see also too that we're all 11th hour workers. <laughs> we all come to Jesus late and he gives us an incredible portion of grace and saves us. You see, the apostles thought they had been given special privilege for their sacrifice. But Jesus is basically saying, nope, you get me. I love what one person, one of my, uh, one of my colleagues, he, he said one time, uh, uh, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, yes. But that doesn't stop us from comparing distances. <laughs> and how often that's true. <laughs> We've all fallen short, but we keep living our lives as if we're comparing our distances and our fallenness. <laughs> and Jesus is trying to say, there is no distance. You've all fallen short. You've all been deemed rightly condemned, but I'm going to bear your condemnation for you. And he says, your hope is in this unfair grace. This undeserved grace. This gift of myself for you. This gift of perfectness on behalf of imperfection. This is God's unspeakable gift. And he says, here, take it and have it. It's me. Let us pray.